Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn in them first to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 24. And then we will read together from 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. But first we'll be considering together Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 24, which is uh, the account where, the Genesis account whereby we see God instituting this uh, uh, institution of marriage between that first man and woman. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 24. Excuse me, we'll we'll be reading through 25. So Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through uh, 25. Hear now the word of our God. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. The man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Well, thus ends the reading of God's holy and inspired word. Please also turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Hear now the word of our Lord. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you received from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things. As we told you beforehand, And solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, 
disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more, and to aspire to live quietly, and to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he again write this word upon our hearts this morning. Please turn now in your order of worship to the confessional reading element this morning. We are confessing together God's truth from Lord's Day, Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 41, question and answers 108 and 109. As always, we'll first begin by reciting together the seventh commandment, which is the commandment that the Heidelberg Catechism is expositing and applying for us. So we'll first begin with question 92, and then we'll go on to questions 108 through 109. As always, I will read the question if you please respond by reciting the answer. Question 92 asks, what is God's law? You shall not commit adultery. Question 108, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? That God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside of the holy state of marriage. Question 109, does God in this commandment forbid only such scandalous sins as adultery? We are temples of the Holy Spirit, body and soul, and God wants both to be kept clean and holy. That is why God forbids all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. Well, let us pray. <clears throat> Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast to the blessed hope of, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, boys and girls, uh, what are the three main sections of our catechism? Yes, Marcus. Guilt, grace, and what, what section are we in right now? Gratitude, very good. Now, to review from that grace section, what are the three elements of true faith? Violet? Knowledge, assent, and trust. And what's the content of this faith? Noel? Apostles' Creed, very good. And what benefit do we receive when we profess this true faith? Isaiah? Christ's righteousness. Where does this faith come from? Annabelle? Yes, the Holy Spirit. And what does the Holy Spirit use to create this faith within us? Isaiah? The preaching of God's word, exactly. And he also uses to nourish or confirm that faith, the sacraments as well. Again, this is why church is so important, because in church we hear the word and we participate in the sacraments. Now, what are the two keys of the kingdom? Annabelle? 
Yes, the preaching of the word and church discipline. Now, as we've been considering as of late in this gratitude section, we are motivated to obey God's law, not out of fear, but out of gratitude. We don't seek to obey God's law in order to earn or maintain our right standing before God, but rather we seek to obey because we have a right standing with God that is secure. And the three elements of a good work that we confessed in question answer 91 is that a good work needs to proceed from a heart of true faith, conform to the law of God, and be unto the glory of God. And so the last several weeks we've been considering what God's will for us is, uh, or how, what God's will is for us in the Ten Commandments, which is that standard by which our good works are to be measured and um, the standard uh, by which our good works are to conform. Now, boys and girls, what are the, um, what are the two, how, how, how do you summarize the Ten Commandments? Yes. Love for God and love for neighbor. What question, what main question does the first commandment answer, boys and girls? Yes, Marcus? Who we should worship. What main question uh, do the second and third commandments answer? Isaiah? How we should worship. And then what question does the fourth commandment answer? Pilate? When, yes, we, we worship on the Sabbath day, on the Lord's day. And the fifth through the tenth commandments deal with our love for neighbor. And so the fifth commandment says that we are to honor authority figures in our life. And last week, we considered the sixth commandment, which touches upon our love for neighbor. So it forbids murder and also anger, but then it positively commands us to love our neighbor. Now, Today, we're moving on to the seventh commandment. Now, last week, I mentioned that the Ten Commandments, as stated in the Decalogue, in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, they merely present the tip of the iceberg. There's much more to these commandments below the surface. And Jesus shows us that. Jesus takes us below the surface in the Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we saw that Jesus, when he applies the sixth commandment, he says it actually means that we, we shouldn't have anger towards our neighbor in our hearts. And so we see the same thing going on here with the seventh commandment. There's much more to the seventh commandment than merely not committing adultery. Now, lots of things that one we could consider when it comes to the seventh commandment. You think about the so-called sexual revolution that is at work in our culture right now, issues of transgenderism, homosexuality, gender identity, uh, the so-called alphabet soup, all those things would fall under the rubric of the seventh commandment. However, we have to be careful that we don't spend our, our time, our energy, uh, fighting these cultural battles while our own marriages are struggling or failing, while we ourselves are addicted to sexual sin and vice. It's very easy to spend our energy and our time with those battles out there and not give sufficient time and energy to the sins that are occurring within our own home and lives. And so the seventh commandment calls us first to make sure our home is in order before we pick up our cultural sword and fight the battles in our own day and age. And this, in fact, is what the Apostle Paul teaches us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So you'll notice in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul explicitly tells us what God's will is for us. And what is God's will for us according 
to Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4? Even before that. Okay. That's good. It's not wrong. But even before that. One word. Oh. <laughs> sanctification. This is the will of God, your sanctification. Now, oftentimes, we, we spend a lot, of, a, lot, a lot of energy. We get very stressed out when it comes to micro issues in our life. Who should we marry? What job should we pursue? Where should we live? How should we spend our finances? Now, when you're wrestling with those types of issues, they don't feel micro in, in the moment, but compared to what Paul is saying here, those are micro-level issues. And the Bible doesn't give you explicit answers when it comes to those types of, of issues and questions in your life. You have to use wisdom. However, what Paul is giving us here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is a macro-level principle that is meant to guide us as we consider the many micro-level issues in our life. And so when you're considering who should you marry, what job you should pursue, where you should live, how you should spend your finances, etc., this principle that God's will for your life is your sanctification is meant to guide you in all of those other decisions that you have to make. Now, you'll notice in question answer 108, the authors of our catechism connect two very important ideas for us. Notice that the question says, what is God's will for us in the seventh commandment? It connects the concept of God's will with the seventh commandment, with the law of God. So one way you could re rephrase what Paul is saying in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 is that God's will for your life, for our lives, is our obedience or conformity to the Ten Commandments. It's essentially what our life of sanctification is. It's a growth in our conformity to the Ten Commandments. Or you could say God's will for our lives is to love God and love our neighbor. Or even more specifically, in the context of Lord's Day 41, God's will for our lives is to obey and conform to the Seventh Commandment. That's God's will for our lives. So the catechism here in question answer 108 is getting even more specific than that when it says, what is God's will for you in the seventh commandment? It's seeking to flesh out what the seventh commandment means for us as we live in this present age. And I'd like to focus your attention on four aspects of God's will for us in this seventh commandment. And we'll be spending our time here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. So first, we see in this chapter that God's will for us in the seventh commandment is that we abstain from a sexual immorality. So this is what Paul says immediately after he says, immediately after uh, where he says that God's will for us is our sanctification. He says that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now this word sexual immorality, porneia, is a word that's used on a number of occasions in the New Testament. And it's a word that mu that's much broader than the word that's ordinarily used for adultery. So what Paul has in mind here is not just the physical act of adultery, but many sexual sins, vices, and perversions. And Paul is telling the church in Thessalonica to abstain from these sorts of sexual sins. Now it's important here to understand a little bit 
of the context behind this short epistle. The first century Roman world was a world that very much endorsed, at times even celebrated, sexual immorality and perversions. Our culture is not the first culture that endorses and celebrates sexual vice. Now, many of the members in this first century church in Thessalonica were Gentile Christians who were converted out of a life of paganism. And in their former life of paganism, they struggled with many sexual sins and temptations. And as we know, just because you become a Christian doesn't mean that temptations cease. It doesn't mean that your former sins are no longer, uh, um, no, no longer a temptation for you. Paul has a very realistic understanding of the Christian life. And so the reason why he says that sexual morality is a first-order priority for the, the life of sanctification for these Thessalonica Christians is because of their context. They're Gentile Christians who were, who were recently converted out of a life of paganism. And these were the sorts of sins that they were tempted to continue to indulge in as they lived as a small Christian community in the midst of a very pagan city and culture. And so we see, um, we see here that God's will for us in the seventh commandment is to abstain from sexual morality. And we think here of what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, where he applies for us the seventh commandment. He says in verses 27 through 28, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus applied the sixth commandment in a very similar way. It's not just murder, it's anger. And so too with the seventh commandment. It's not just the physical act of adultery, it's lust in the heart. That is a breach of the seventh commandment. You'll notice that we confess this very similar idea in question and answer 108. In question and answer 108, the catechism tells us, which reflects Paul and Jesus' teaching here, that there's really only two paths for us in this life. If you're single, that path includes absolute celibacy. Or if you're married, that the second path includes chastity within that marital covenant. Those are the only two paths. You'll see that in question and answer 108 that God condemns all unchastity and that we should therefore detest it wholeheartedly and live decent and chaste lives within or outside the holy state of marriage. And then in question and answer 109, the catechism says that the seventh commandment extends to all unchaste actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, or whatever may entice or incite someone to them. And so, God's will for us in the seventh commandment is, is to abstain, not just from the physical act of adultery, but all forms of sexual immorality. Well, second, we see that God's will for us in the seventh commandment is to get married, or at least for some of us, to get married. So if you continue reading on here in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul goes on to say that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor. Now, if you're reading from the ESV, you may see a footnote there that says an alternative reading could be how to take a wife for himself. And it may also indicate that the Greek here says how to possess his own vessel. 
So the word that Paul employs here is vessel, and vessel can either refer to one's own body or it can refer to one's wife. And so the, the translators here had to make an interpretive decision as to what Paul is referring to. Is he referring to um, these Christians' own body or is he referring to their, their wives? And so Paul may be saying here that for some of us, God's will for us in the seventh commandment is to get married. If you take that alternative reading here, Paul is saying that each one of you needs to know how to take a wife for himself in holiness and in honor. Marriage is part of the seventh commandment. In that reading that we read from Genesis chapter 2, we see God instituting marriage as a creational ordinance. Marriage is not an institution that the church owns. It's a creational institution. And in creation, you see that marriage is fundamentally defined as the union of those who are different. Man is created first, and he is in need of a helper, and so God creates woman who is different than the man to be his helper. And throughout Scripture, we see God condemning sexual relations between those people who are too similar to one another, whether that be in homosexuality or in incest. Marriage, fundamentally, according to the dictates of creation itself, is the union of those who are different. In the Song of Songs, you see the man praising aspects that are distinctive to the female body, and the female is praising, or the woman is praising aspects that are distinctive to the male body. The Song of Songs recognizes this creational element of marriage. Furthermore, when you read about Genesis or Genesis's description of the city of Sodom and Gomorrah, you see that that city struggled to embrace the other. And this took two forms. They were inhospitable to strangers and they embraced and celebrated homosexual relationships. So they failed to embrace the other. They failed to be hospitable towards the sojourner, the stranger, and they failed to promote heterosexual marital relationships. We see that, and thus we see in creation that marriage is the union of those who are different. Consequently, then, God made us as sexual beings. Sexual desires are not in themselves sinful. Now, the church has not always been clear on this but is not any more spiritual or holy to be a celibate single person than to be married. However, God is very clear, as our catechism reflects here in question and answers 108 through 109, that marriage is the only place where sexual desires are to be expressed. And so, we see here that God's will for us, or at least for some of us in the seventh commandment, is, is to get married. The institution of marriage is a good thing. It's a creational ordinance and the proper context for sexual desires to be expressed. One author I was reading this week compared uh, sexual desires to that of a fire. So if you think of having a fire in your house, if that fire is contained in a fireplace, a stove, a furnace, or on your gas, uh, gas burner, that's good. It benefits the family. However, if that fire is uncontrol uncontrolled in your living room, it's going to wreak havoc. 
And so it is when it comes to our sexual desires. If it's being expressed in the context of marriage, it's a very good thing. However, if it is being expressed outside the bounds of marriage, then it's like an uncontrolled fire going through your living room. It's going to wreak havoc, not only in your life, but possibly in many other people's lives. Third, we see that God's will for us in the seventh commandment is to love our neighbor. So as we continue on in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul says that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. And then he goes on to speak about love, love for neighbor in the midst of this church in Thessalonica. What's really interesting here is that Paul seems to connect the seventh commandment to the sixth commandment. What does the sixth commandment positively call us to do? To love our neighbor. And so... What Paul is saying here is that we love our neighbor by pursuing purity. We love our neighbor by not treating our neighbor as sexual objects. We love our neighbor by delighting in our spouse only. We love our neighbor by not lusting after others in our mind. And for those of you who are married, you know that marriage has a way of testing your love and revealing your selfishness like no other human relationship. So Paul is saying the sixth commandment, love your neighbor, and now in the seventh commandment is test case number one. And so God's will for us in the seventh commandment is to love our neighbor. The seventh commandment tells us in a very practical way how we can love our neighbor. Whether you're single or married. Well, fourth... God's will for us in the seventh commandment is to recognize the goodness of God's law. God's will for us in the seventh commandment is to recognize the goodness of God's law. So Paul says here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is how Paul concludes his consideration of, of sexual ethics. He says, don't think that this is merely my opinion that I'm giving you. This is God's teaching. God is the one who established uh, the norms for our sexuality. God is the one who established the seventh commandment. God is the one who tells us to abstain from sexual immorality. God is the one who ha has established the institution of marriage and tells us how to interact within that institution this is God's teaching. We are to recognize the goodness of God's law in the seventh commandment. Now we need, to, we need to know that God's law is not merely a legal code that's found only in scripture. God's law is a law that's written upon our hearts. God's law is a law that's written to the very fabric and order of this natural universe. Consequently then, God's law is what tells us how we can flourish as image bearers in this created natural universe. God's law tells us what's good for us as image bearers in this present creation. One important concept that the church needs to continue to embrace and at times even recover is this concept of natural law. God's law is not arbitrary. God didn't just wake up one day and declare this 
you know, his ethics for the church and for creation that's completely detached for how, from how we are made and how this present creation is set up. There's wisdom and goodness and benefit for us as image bearers as we follow God's will for us in this age. And so whether, you know, we're single or married, we need to understand as I said before, the goodness of the seventh commandment. So whether you're a celibate single individual or you're seeking to live chastely within the bounds of marriage, we shouldn't think of, of ourselves having to um, grin and bear these duties that we're called to do while the world out there is enjoying the good life of sexual promiscuity. Rather, if we understand this natural law element to the seventh commandment, the path to a flourishing life is the path of obedience to the seventh commandment. And this is true not just for us as Christians. This is true for us as image bearers. This is true even to, to, to a certain extent uh, for unbelievers, for non-Christians, for those who don't embrace true faith in Jesus Christ. This is true for those who are human beings living in this present creation. God's law makes sense for how we are to live in this natural universe. That's very important for us to, to, to recognize and embrace. And I've said this before, but it's sort of analogous to uh, someone seeking to live according to the law of gravity or someone who, who, who seeks to defy the law of gravity every turn. One, one, one path will lead to a, uh, a flourishing life in this creation. One path will lead to a very difficult life in this present creation. And that's similar to how God's law functions for image bearers in this present creation. And so it's important for us to recognize that God's law is not arbitrary. It's wise and it's good for us as those who reflect his image. Well, I mentioned this morning that God's law functions as a mirror and exposes us. It gives us a glimpse of objective reality. Now, the seventh commandment has the power of especially bringing to our consciousness the guilt of sin and even the shame of sin like really no other commandment does. And so it's really important for us to, to realize that on the one hand, this is what the seventh commandment is meant to do. The law is meant to strike us down, to kill us, to judge us. We shouldn't seek to water down God's law. When the law brings shame and guilt, the law is doing what it's meant to do. However, we're a church. Uh, we embrace a tradition that not only preaches the law, but we also preach the gospel. And the gospel justifies. The gospel gives life. And the gospel is for sinners, for sexual sinners, for sinners who transgress the seventh commandment. And so I'd like, as we move towards uh, concluding, I'd like to read what Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Paul says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So notice 
three sins in particular here that Paul lists. He lists the sins of sexual immorality, adultery, and homosexuality. And he says that if you practice these sins and do not repent and believe, you will not enter the kingdom of God. That's true for all of us. We've all broken the seventh commandment. But Paul says there's good news for those who do repent and believe. As he says in verses 11 and 12, and such were some of you, but you've been washed, you've been sanctified, and you've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Now, no doubt, these Corinthian Christians who lived in a very similar context as the Christians in Thessalonica, no doubt, these Christians still struggled with these sins of sexual immorality and homosexuality. Again, when you become a Christian, you don't just become perfect. The power of sin is gone, but the presence still remains. But notice what Paul says here. He's speaking about the concept of identity. He's saying that these Corinthian Christians are no longer identified as homosexuals, as the sexually immoral. Rather, they're identified as the justified, the sanctified, the washed ones. Paul's saying, at the end of the day, I don't care how your, your week went. I don't care how many times you stumbled and, and fell. You are not your sin. You are justified. You are sanctified. You are washed no matter how dirty you feel. And you can't forget that identity that you have in the gospel. And because you have that new identity, you are to seek every day to live according to that identity. Of course, we will be imperfect and we'll fall and stumble. We can't forget who we are. And so, to rephrase what Paul is saying here, you could say that Paul is calling the church in Corinth to, to, to live lives of grateful obedience to the seventh commandment out of gratitude for the new identity they've received in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, beloved, this, this is who we are. Uh, we are the justified. We are the sanctified. We are the washed ones. And we are called here to live each day according to that identity that we have received in the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let us pray.